Hi, everybody who listens to Future Primitive. I'm very happy to welcome today Will Keepin, PhD, and Cynthia Bricks, who is actually Reverend Cynthia Bricks. Will Keeping is the president and executive director who co-founded the Satyana Institute in 1996 and has been developing its power of reconciliation work since the early 1990s. His training was originally in mathematical physics and later in transpersonal psychology and Eastern meditation disciplines. Will's professional background began in environmental science. He was a research scholar at the International Institute of Applied System Analysis near Vienna, Austria, where he became a whistleblower in a major international scientific research project that was biased to favor nuclear power. Will's work on global warming and renewable energy influenced international environmental policy, and he presented testimony to the parliaments of United Kingdom, Germany, Sweden, Australia, and the U.S. House of Representatives. More uh, recently, Will Keeping is the co-author of the book Divine Duality, and which shows a pathway to healing, divisive gender issues for individuals and nations. Would you like to add something, Will? No, that, <laughs> that sounds very glowing. Um, that's fine. I think that, that sounds wonderful. Thank you. Okay. Reverend Cynthia Briggs is the program director for Satyana Institute, where she co-directs Satyana's Power of Reconciliation project. In addition to her leadership with the healing work between men and women, she provides developmental support for the Mayher project, an interfaith shelter and resource center for battered and destitute women and children located near Pune, India. She is the former Unitarian Universalist campus minister at the University of Colorado, Boulder. She is also a co-author of the book Divine Duality, which shows a pathway to healing divisive gender issues for individuals and nations. So I would like to start by asking you both what the Satyana Institute is about and what you do. Well, I'll begin. Um, Satyana Institute, our motto or our little tagline is we do inner work of the heart for outer service in the world. And we have three program areas. One is the Gender Reconciliation International. We have a program area called Heart of the Beloved um, that works on the inner spiritual level and with people from all different faith traditions and people who don't claim a faith tradition but um, or don't identify, but they are uh, very connected spiritually. And then we have another program called Cultivating Women's Spiritual Mastery, where we bring um, women spiritual leaders together from the different faith traditions and provide mentorship and leadership for those of us, other women who are aspiring on the path, but yet meet up within the patriarchal structures of the church, the temple, the um, mosque, um, and out in the world as we are on our spiritual path. And we help one another to... um, make it in this world and in, uh, as we continue to be on the spiritual path. So Cultivating Women's Spiritual Mastery, Heart of the Beloved, and Gender Reconciliation are the three program areas of Satchana. Okay. Will, would you like to uh, speak about it? 
um, the Institute was founded in 1996. The, actually, the, uh, the gender reconciliation work is actually the oldest of our projects. It's been going um, for 20 years this year and actually predates the founding of the Satyana Institute. Uh, we began working in that arena. And maybe I, I just give a little background about that project. I, as you mentioned in the bio, I, uh, my background is in environmental science and advocacy work. And I was working on global warming issues and advocating for sustainable energy solutions to uh, energy issues and global warming issues. And in the co course of that, um, we encountered uh, in our professional networks uh, a number of, there were difficult dynamics, shall we say, going uh, between men and women within the professional community. And these were uh, essentially sexual harassment issues that were not being addressed and were actually taboo to even talk about. So we had uh, basically a network of skilled and um, let's say courageous pioneers who were essentially challenging the shadow side of industrial civilization by taking on the environmental issues. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the psychological pollution in our own working environment, that was not being addressed and was taboo to even mention. So a group of us began to organize some events to address that and that was where the work began. The earliest forms were called, uh, we called the first workshops we did 20 years ago this year, uh, Gender and Ecology. And we were looking at the parallels between oppression of the feminine on the one side and oppression, and, or exploitation, I should say, exploitation of the feminine and exploitation of the earth. Yes. And <clears throat> recognizing there were certain systemic parallels between those two. And that was the beginning, and, and the initial workshops we did were really never intending to go public with the work at all. It was to address um, a need within the uh, our own professional community. And the first few that we did, I'd say, were kind of disasters, really. <laughs> we unleashed something that was far more powerful than the methodology we had was able to contain and to work skillfully with. And so we, over the next several years, we uh, began experimenting with how to address these issues more skillful, skillfully. And that led eventually to uh, developing more effective ways of working with the intensity of the issues. And, you know, the, the gender wound in the human family is deep and it's ancient. We're talking thousands of years that this has been the case. And so... Um, as we begin to go into that arena, we bring in uh, some very deeply entrenched patterns and even archetypal levels of, of wounding in the human family. And so this was uh, a bigger mountain, shall we say, than we realized as we began to uh, work at this work. But over, over time, we eventually developed some effective ways of working. We began to get some um, really good results, and then others began to hear about the work, so we began getting interest from other quarters, particularly, I would say, from psychotherapy community and also the clergy. Um, those folks in particular started to take an interest, so we were asked to do this work at a higher level, uh, I mean, a more public level, sorry, public level. So we began offering these workshops in mid-90s uh, in a public way, and and then it just continued slowly to grow. And in 2001, we were invited into India and began working in India, which has been a very powerful uh, learning for us and expanding of the work into working in cultures of extreme gender-based violence. And we expanded that work in 2003. We were invited into South Africa. And in 2006, we uh, were invited to do a program for members of parliament and religious leaders in South Africa that really opened the work up in that country and led to lots of invitations over the next few years. And about 
three years ago, we began professional training of facilitators in South Africa. And at this point, we now have 33 of them certified on the ground uh, doing the work in their own constituencies and communities. And we've got another training going in South Africa, plus a new one uh, that we started in Kenya last year and continuing this year, and one in India that starts this summer, as well as a new professional training starting in the United States in May. So we have the demand for training of facilitators in this work has, has gone way up in the last two to three years. There seems to be a wide recognition now that we need another level of healing work. We've had the women's movement, we've had the men's movement, and they have each contributed something extremely valuable. But there's another step that's needed um, and that is actually a very profound and important step, which is bringing... Because, in a sense, these two uh, wounds are not separate. It's really one wound in the human family, and we need to bring those different aspects together and work with them together. And that really is the purpose of the Gender Reconciliation Project. I would like to ask Cynthia to uh, elaborate on... uh, this notion that the raping and the disrespect of women is uh, linked with the raping and disrespect of the earth? Well, as we, um, as we continue to do harm to one another um, in our personal relationships, we do harm to everything in our environment. And I, I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact quote, Will, you might be able to help me out here, but um, one, I mean, several leaders have said things, Martin Luther King Jr., um, but I'm remembering the eye for an eye kind of thing, you know, (laughs) Um, the violence we do for one another, I think that's a biblical quote, um, of of what we do to one another, violence begets violence. Well, an eye for an eye will make the whole world blind, I think is Gandhi's quote. Okay. And um, and so the violence, not only to women, but I would say to men too, and we don't recognize the violence that's done to men, the training of men to primarily men. I know women are trained also to go into the military, but primarily men are trained to go into the military to kill kill other human beings. That violence, and we're seeing it with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and things like that, when the soldiers come back from war and then they have been trained to do this harm to one another and then they just can't handle it and they get back into society and end up doing killing and harm to other human beings. As we learn to do that destruction to one another, and we're trained to do it, and we're not held accountable for those actions that we do to one another, we do the same to our environment. We disregard. We take out the sacred and look at everything as profane. And um, it's it's a real tragedy, I think. And... What we are seeing as we continue to work with people around the world is that when we come together and we witness one another in our own pain and oppression and we hear the stories of each other in the ways that we have experienced the violation of the patriarchy, of society, of our cultures, human to human, we see that we can begin to appreciate and love and forgive one another and forgive ourselves for these violations that have happened. And in doing so, then our eyes see anew and our way of being in the world changes. And not only do our relationships with one another change, women to women, men to men, women to men, and vice versa, but also how we are in our surroundings and our environment, how we treat the earth. So in a much larger sense, I really do trust and hold that the more we can begin to love one another again and begin to see 
one another for our the beauty and our humanness, um, heart to heart, through our truth-telling. Once we start doing that with one another, we will indeed begin to treat our earth and our our sacred environment in a totally different way and appreciate it, and things will start shifting and changing. And perhaps if I can just add um, yes. a direct to, the, to your question, there's a direct parallel between the objectification of women and essentially the objectification of the earth. So in the case of the earth, the earth is an object that is there for our needs, for our fulfillment, our pleasure, and we can just go to it and take what we need and take it violently if we need. If we want, you know, we go into a forest and we clear-cut the entire forest, we are oblivious to the fact that these are living beings in the forest. We just clear the trees out. We rape the land in that way. And in the same sense, that's the same conscious rape consciousness that is there in the culture in relation to the objectification of women. And women, in that sense, can be seen as an object of pleasure that can be basically exploited for that pleasure without regard to the fact that she's an independent living being with, and that this is a violation of her, of her being and of her body. So there's a certain sense that the body of the earth and the body of women are both objectified and not seen as sacred beings in their own right. Okay, so I'm going to ask you, this is, uh, this is really great, that concept of objectification, which I was taught. I want to ask both of you, uh, from your experience all over the world and in yourselves, define sacred. Oh, that's a great question. And, and part of the beauty of sacred is that it's ineffable and it's beyond definition. But it's something we all know in our hearts when we see it. And it's basically the presence of something eternal and precious beyond all material value. It's something that we experience in the eyes of a baby very easily. For example, an infant causes all of us to stop and catch our breath when we see that pure, innocent beauty. And there's some way in which it's a portal into a knowing in our own hearts of that inherent preciousness of life. We see it in other ways, um, but of course it gets obscured in the, in, the, in the world of, you know, our social institutions and all of that. But it's a good question. I mean, the sacred also relates to what all the different spiritual traditions of the world are seeking to honor, to cultivate a relationship to, an invocation of. And of course, we know that the religious traditions have gotten saddled with all kinds of baggage and patriarchal garbage in their own right. And yet, still, at the core of them are a set of practices and a call, really, to reclaim and to live the sacred on and in life and on the earth. And this is something that um, really has a larger call. I think we've lost that in, in our Western materialist society, we've lost a living, present connection to the sacred, and it's one of the greatest, probably, root causes, both of the gender wound in the human family and the larger cultural imbalance that we find ourselves in. Because when we lose the sacred, when, when the sacred is denied, then the forces of materialism and economic exploitation and political exploitation come in and begin to take over. So there's a, there's a systemic dysfunction there that is really quite profound and, and is really a spiritual crisis. And, yeah. There, and, and I, exactly what Will's saying in the sense of the forgottenness of the sacred and, and, uh, and what we worship or honor as sacred oftentimes is... Um, perhaps a false um, uh, misrepresentation um, in terms 
we worship in the material world. Um, I love the idea of, of the baby or the children that represent that because they come in in such a pure way. And there's a story, uh, I think it's from the Sufi tradition, that talks about when, um, when a, a group of children walk down the street or when any child walks down the street to take notice because the divine is passing by and because that child holds up to a certain point in life, probably, you know, the first five years of a child's life, they really are still operating within two different worlds. They still hold that world from which they were born, and they're entering into this new world. And, um, and they're not conditioned in all the, all the ways that our world can lay on heavy conditioning of how it is to be. So when you see that child, that baby, or that three-year-old, they bring an energy and life into the, into the space that reminds us of what the sacred is and that purity of heart. And I, I feel that for myself and my own life, and I would say for all of us, a lot of our work is to remember that place, to bring ourselves back into the truth of who we are, our true nature, back into our heart, um, centered place, that place that we really know what we long for and desire, um, in the truest sense of that desire, not from the primal level, but from the eternal level, of again, of what we were born from and what we will die back into, um, that unknown mystery, and, and tap into that. And in doing so, we, when we do that, and we have little glimpses of it, then we come back into the sacred. Okay. Would you be willing to um, give us some examples of how you have been able to heal gender injustice uh, within yourselves? Maybe some of the most profound realization within yourself um, of the, um, the separation and war between the genders. that 
um, during that time. He'd walk into my office the days after and invite me to dinner, and I'd say, no, I have to go home to my children. And he said, well, it's obvious you're not ready yet. So it was those types of things. I ended up within a very short time, within a week, of bringing um, this to um, my boss and um, to the HR director in the most compassionate way I could. And this, the chairman of the board who propositioned me said that he would um, honor that and he understood and he would do whatever he needed to do to make it right. And he admitted the wrongdoing. Ultimately, the company hired six attorneys. Um, I hired one and they brought me down and I lost my job. I ended up realizing, though, that I couldn't continue to distrust and dislike men, which I had come to the point of. And the women in the corporation also betrayed me. They turned their back on me. They had to, in many ways, to keep their jobs. So I had no trust of women either, or very little. And I couldn't continue to mistrust women. So I um, realized I had a lot of healing in myself to do. I did that work, and a year after all of this happened, my attorney called and said that I had to make a decision within the next 24 hours whether to take it to federal court. And it would have been a long, drawn-out process, and I decided it wasn't about retaliation. The company had offered to pay me $5,000 to sign a paper saying I'd never share the story again. Well, obviously, I, I didn't take that money. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm sharing the story, and I'm, I feel like I've transformed that into a place that is doing more good in the world, and I do have trust of men, I do have trust of women, and I've done my own inner work around the wounding and betrayal that I felt and experienced from this, these men and women and from the corporate structure, and I'm trying to bring that into the world to help others learn how to do it. Thank you. What about you, Will? Um, for me, you know, as a young boy, I was—I grew up uh, with three sisters, and I grew up in an environment where um, I always enjoyed and appreciated uh, the feminine. And as I came into my young manhood, I developed the attitudes of the society and became, you know, a relatively uh, self-important, unconscious young man. And my early relationships with women um, were, let's just say they weren't very successful in terms of building long-term harmony. And I never understood what was going on. I just uh, felt that, uh, well, I, I, I don't think I was very aware. I had, a, I had a major realization at one point where in my 30s where I realized that I had never actually loved women for who they were. It was all about what they could give me. Uh, that wasn't true of just women. That was actually true of everyone. <laughs> but in particular, in relation to women, I realized that that was the whole essence of the nature of um, my way of relating and all of my friends' ways of relating uh, to women. So I, I, I went through a, a powerful metamorphosis, and um, there's a line, I think, somewhere in the in actually in the Gospels where Jesus says to the woman at the well that he loves her for herself and other men love her for themselves. And that was essentially what I realized was that I loved the women in my life for myself. I had nothing to do with them and I didn't even know who they were as human beings because I hadn't ever really opened myself in that way. So that was the beginning of a major shift and the... Um, I also had a very powerful experience uh, working with uh, two clinical psychologists for six years. Um, 
I was trained in this process called the holotropic breathwork, which is an experiential body-centered breathing practice. And after the training, I was invited into a clinical practice with two women uh, psychotherapists who had a clientele of a lot of abused uh, clients, mostly women, but also some men. And so I, I was able to experience firsthand the incredible pain of sexual violation of particularly of children and young girls um, and young boys and working through the healing of that over a period of six years with, with many of these different clients was part of the impetus for starting this gender reconciliation work because I, I saw and experienced firsthand the unbelievable pain and trauma that is created through this avenue of sexual uh, abuse and exploitation and so that was a that was a major wake up for me that then coupled with the fact of seeing that same kind of abuse taking place in the context of my own professional community um, was was really those were the impetus for beginning this work you say that um the era of patriarchy is coming to an end. Um, could you both speak to that? Well, the thing that comes to mind when you ask that um, question is, or bring that comment up, is um, one of our workshops in South Africa. And during the workshops, we... Um, at the end of them, we have a celebration, an honoring ceremony that the men create for the women, and the women create an honoring ceremony and ritual for the men, um, and for the masculine and feminine honored in both. Um, and we, this is after a very deep process of sharing our stories, truth-telling, really being together in community, going deeply into the wound um, that we all hold that is um, um, out in society, out in culture, created um, by the patriarchy and by our conditioning of the patriarchy. So we've come through this deep process, and at the end we do these honorings for showing up, for doing this deep work, and really honoring one another. And in South Africa, the men in that group um, created a ceremony, and they led all the women in, and they seated us in a semicircle all together and then when we entered the room there was a structure of chairs of like um, a, a tower of chairs the metal chairs you know like desk chairs um, all stacked together high and there were two men on either side of this structure this tower and then there was a statement made by the men saying that there had been enough abuse there had been way too much abuse to women in this system, and that it was time for this system to end. So a new, more harmonious um, system could be built um, with men and women together, coming together to build this and create this loving um, environment for one another. And at that time, the men on the side each grabbed a bottom leg of the bottom chair and pulled it out, and this tower came crashing down. Wow. And the women all, <gasps> everyone in the room was just amazed and taken aback. And it was so beautiful to watch because it really did put into action and into our sight what is happening and what can happen when a group of people come together with a commitment to make the change. And I, I must say, these men, several of these men from the South African group, are the men that then have taken up the torch there and started leading the cause, leading the, the movement for the facilitator training that began happening. So um, the women and men joined together in that, but the men really did put it into action at that point. Mm -hmm. and, and I would say, 
symbolizes the aspiration. I mean, when we say that the patriarchy is coming to an end, we're basically talking about a wake-up that's happening in the human family, about the magnitude of this dysfunction. And it's, it's been happening for decades, in a way. I would say that in some ways it maybe began, one could say it began with the women's movement, although it actually began much earlier because every... Every social justice movement in some way relates to the abuse of power in some sense, and it's usually that abuse of power usually has some patriarchal dimensions to it, some deep connection to the patriarchal society that's been in place for thousands of years. But there is, I think now, a wake-up on a level that's really unprecedented. Part of it is fueled by the, the, the level of communication that's available now. Um, women in Saudi Arabia, for example, who might be at risk or in Muslim countries at risk of being, you know, <clears throat> stoned to death for a certain sexual activity that in, is routine in the West. But now they know that it's different culture elsewhere. Uh, we, we women in India who are at risk of being burned alive um, because they don't pay the dowry to their husband's family now know it's not that way everywhere. So just the communication factor is waking up um, an awareness of the magnitude of the oppression. But there's also a, a very beautiful awakening happening in men, and, and I've seen this over the last 20 years. The, the, the consciousness of the men coming to our work is way up from what it was 20 years ago, both the consciousness of the men and the numbers of men interested. And men are starting to say, you know, I don't want to be part of this. I never even asked for this. I did not want this conditioning when I was a teenage boy. It was thrust on me. And so men are starting to wake up and throw off this dysfunctional masculinization that has happened to them without their permission and without their even being aware. And and there's a, an awakening in men now that the true male privilege has nothing to do with the kind of social advantages that men are given in an unjust society. But the, the greatest male privilege is to actually be part of deconstructing this whole unjust system that we call the patriarchy. And more and more men are waking up to this. We're seeing them turning up in our work, and in other ways they're showing up to begin this process of deconstructing this uh, gender apartheid that has been so ruinous to the human family in virtually every society. So there is, there is an awakening now that I think is quite unprecedented um, in the last 10 to 20 years in particular, and we're seeing it uh, accelerating ever more. And, and what's part of what's fueling it is that as men begin to shed that dysfunctional identification and socialization, they begin to discover a whole new dimension, both of themselves and of their relationship to the feminine, both the feminine within themselves and the feminine people and women in their lives and in their families. And so there's a whole healing and transformation of these relationships into really a more sort of love-centered, compassion-centered way of living. And this is so valuable. And so naturally, people recognize this is the way we're meant to live. And, and so I, I do feel that patriarchy is coming to an end. And if for no other reason, then it is, um, let's just put it this way, the, the magnitude of the potential conflicts that could emerge if we continue down this path with the weapons of mass destruction that we have today would threaten the whole human family and perhaps even all life on Earth. So it's going to come to an end one way or the other, and our great prayer is that we can transform and facilitate, and by we I mean the human family, this larger human family, that we can move through this transformation and evolution of consciousness to another whole uh, way of being. And that, I think, is happening. Good news. Very, very good news. So I'd like to ask you both um, if you uh, choose to to speak to us about your book, Divine Duality. Let's say how divine duality can open people's hearts to 
healing the injustice between men and women? Well, Divine Duality, um, the book, is um, it speaks to the methodology we use in the workshop. But even more than that, it speaks to the stories that arise and come out of the workshop and people sharing their own truth. And I'll just tell you one of the stories from the book, and that is a story of um, Elena, who um, came to a workshop not knowing exactly what it was going to be about. And in the process, um, we do different activities. In the beginning, we do a silent witnessing process where the women are on one side of the room and the men are on the other side. And I'll read a series of questions to the women, and they're invited to stand if the question is true for them. And then after the women do their questions, then the men will read the same series of questions to the men. And it's all done in silence. And in this process, Elena um, was able to stand for a story that she had kept for a secret for over 20 years. She and her children have kept for a secret as a secret. And when she spoke of the story, we found out later during the process of the workshop that when she had spoken of the story, she always spoke in third person. So it was never her own story. It was a story of someone else's. And it was a story of tremendous abuse that she had experienced from her husband. And so this is the first time that she had ever stood for the truth of her own story, and she was able to do it in silent witness with the men present. Throughout the workshop, she ended up sharing a little bit more. She shared some in the women's circle when it was just women and the men were doing their process separately as men. And she shared a little bit more then again when we came back into a process with the men sitting in silent witness as the women shared, continued to share their stories. And at that time, Elena gave the full story of what had happened in her life. And she said that her husband had been abusing her for 25 years of their marriage. And he would, the abuse was to the extent that he would hold the babies, their babies, up from the second floor over the balcony, the banister railing, and dangle them and threaten to drop them while Elena was down below ready to catch them. The abuse also included him moving his mistress into the house, into her, Elena's bedroom, and making Elena and the children sleep up in the toilet area of the house. One day, when Elena was cooking some hot sausage in the hot oil on the stove, her husband came in demanding money for his alcohol and, um, and uh, you know, substances that he uh, in, uh, partook in. And Elena said, no, she needed that money for the children's shoes. Well, when he heard that, he came at her with a knife, and Elena took that hot oil she was frying sausages in, and she threw it at him, and it burned him all down the front. And he was just outraged and angry. And the mistress who was living in her house came after her, and Elena took the skillet and hit her over the head. Well, what happened was the husband got Elena arrested and thrown in jail for the abuse that he said she was doing to him. Mm -hmm. That didn't last long because Elena was the breadwinner in the family. She was the one that went out working, and, and so the money stopped coming in. So the husband got her out of jail and... Um, and got her working again, and Elena continued to live in that marriage until his death. She shared this story for the first time ever in the workshop. And when she did, she felt so much freedom and liberation, she said, from just telling her truth after holding it as a secret with her children for so many years. About a week later after the workshop, we saw Elena, and she was just beaming and so full of light and love, and she said, I have something to tell you. Right after the workshop, I went and I visited my husband's grave, and I was able to forgive him, and I was able to tell him that I forgave him. And then I went to the mistress who was still alive, and I hadn't seen her for 20 years, 
and I knocked on her door, and the mistress came to the door, and she was in a wheelchair, and she said, Elena, I've been thinking about you all week long, and I think the reason I'm in this wheelchair is for all that I did, all the horrible things I did to you and your children. And they were able to come together. Elena was able to forgive the mistress. So that story for me, when I heard it, and experienced it with Elena, it just spoke to me of how powerful sharing our stories and telling our truth in the, in the safe community that we create in the workshops to be able to come to a place of transformation and forgiveness at that level is just profound to me. And it's through truth-telling and sharing our stories at a level that others can hear and can receive. I'd like to ask you both to define forgiveness. I would say that forgiveness is the relinquishing of any sense of debt that is owed to one for having been wronged. And that that process of forgiveness releases the person who's doing the forgiving even more than the one who is forgiven. Because without forgiveness, one carries that sense of having been a victim um, or having victimized. And either way, one is oppressed by that. And forgiveness is the process of releasing all of that. Um, I might also just say, just in, in response to your earlier question in relation to the book, just a couple of things about the book. It, the story that Cynthia gave is one of many stories in the book that cover many different dimensions of this whole arena of gender injustice, gender disharmony, and how this work can affect transformation because we've seen it in so many different cases and communities. We have witnessed the power of ordinary men and women coming into a group. Typically our groups are 20 to 30 people, although we've had uh, conference settings where we've had over 250 people. But in general, uh, most of the work is done in groups of in the 20 to 30 numbers of people. And in a group that size, you have something like a 1,000 to 1,200 years of lived experience right there in the circle. You have all the wounding, all the data has been lived by someone in that group. And then we we move into, as, as Martin Luther King said so beautifully, and, and it really speaks to the essence of the way our work works. He said that injustice and corruption will never be transformed by keeping them hidden but only by bringing them out into the light and confronting them with the power of love. And that's really what we do in this work. And the book documents many different stories of that and different cultures and contexts. Um, What it does not do, I should say, is give uh, a detailed sense of the skills required to facilitate that work. The book is not a training manual for the work. We do have a training manual which goes with the professional training that we do. And because of the intensity of this work and the depth of the work, the the training requires um, some extensive time working with this kind of work. So that's what we do in our professional training, which is takes place in four modules spread over uh, close to a year so that people have time to really work into the depth of the issues and grapple with how do you work with those in a group, in a community. The book documents the results that we've been getting in all these different contexts, and the training then trains other same work that we are doing. Thank you for mentioning these things. So we're coming slowly around to the... um, end of our conversation and I want to ask you if you'd like to speak about your new website Gender Reconciliation International.org Well our new website um, is getting 
launched right away, um, should be launched by the time this airs, and um, it is Gender Reconciliation National, uh, International, Gender Reconciliation International.org. Um, and we invite people to visit there. There are videos of um, the work in action that you can watch and also testimonials to the work. Um, there are articles that you can see. There's also um, photographs which bring the work to life and people that are involved with the work to, to share more about what is happening in this arena. The, there's also the listing of our professional facilitator training, which begins this May, and we're taking applications for that right now. We also try to keep the price low, the cost low, to make this accessible to as many people as feel drawn to the work can come and participate. Um, we also, next year, one year from Valentine's Day, so uh, February 14th through 17th, 2013, so one year from now, we're going to have a gender reconciliation conference, a national conference um, at Cascadia Center in Mount Vernon, Washington, which is just north of Seattle. Um, and so that announcement will be on the website as well as um, announcements for other workshops and, and just very exciting things happening. I think we're all feeling the new surge as we move into the year of 2013, and I definitely feel like things are emerging and, and being born into this um, world that we live into, and, and we're feeling that within the gender reconciliation work as well. So we invite people to join us. So I would like to ask you both, take your time and please say a few words in closing.
a national conference really calling all women and men who are ready to take this next step to come forward and take that step with us. Okay. And I would say that um, it is so profoundly important that the men show up. And the men who show up for this work um, are just exquisite and wonderful men who have the courage and the consciousness to make these changes. We often in our work, and I think in workshops in general and in things like this, the women do show up and in, in large numbers, and we need the men to show up too. And I just honor those men who um, have shown up for this kind of work and continue to, and I ask um, the other men, our brothers out there, to come along and, and um, show up with the women and with your sisters and do this work together as brothers and sisters in humanity. Gender oppression is universal, and all societies will benefit tremendously from authentic gender healing and the reconciliation work that needs to be done. We're in profound need of a kind of Truth and Reconciliation Commission like they did in the South African uh, movement uh, against apartheid. We're in that same kind of need for a Truth and Reconciliation Commission on gender um, and injustice and sexism. So we must cultivate a vast forgiveness for the violations of women and girls, the profound betrayal of the men and boys, and the persecution of all those who haven't conformed to the narrow, rigid, heterosexual stereotypes that we see. Humanity will never be able to move fully forward into the next phase of evolution toward a new civilization of love and harmony without first reconciling this gender imbalance. So we need to do this work. It is time. 2013 is here, and it's time to do the work. And I just invite all those who are willing and able and, and have the courage and the, and the high consciousness to step into their own healing to help heal our communities and um, on a global level as well as our local level. And if I may, I might just add, um, this work, gender reconciliation work, uh, is not male bashing. Men sometimes feel a, a kind of understandable hesitation about coming to this work, like, oh boy, you know, we're really going to take it now, because uh, there's a fear, understandably, that there will be a kind of a male bashing uh, free-for-all. <clears throat> it's not that at all. This work is basically a, a work that is about healing and not blaming. And it brings women and men together who are ready to begin that constructive work of building a new relational integrity between men and women, recognizing the injustices, recognizing the wounds, facing the wounds, but not wallowing in them. We're really working with the power of the heart to build um, integrity and relational harmony anew. That's, that's really it. The other thing I'd say, just in closing, is that this work is um, open to all sexual orientations. Uh, uh, so it is not just work of heterosexuals, but it's work for gay, lesbian, bisexual um, um, folks, and also um, um, that across ages. This last workshop we did in New Mexico in the beginning of January, we had from 20-year-olds, um, 26 years of age to 80 years of age. It was a beautiful setting, and what was recognized by the group is that gender injustice, gender oppression is happening within every generation. We're not free from it, and we're not free from it yet. So um, we work together um, regardless of whatever your background is. Thank you so much, Cynthia Briggs and Will Keeping, for being with us at Future Primitive. Thank you, thank Joanna. You. It's been a joy to speak with you. Yeah, thank you. Future Primitive is made possible 
by the Marion Institute. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider supporting our work by making a tax-deductible contribution online at futureprimitive.org.